You are listening to Subtle Disruptors Melbourne. This is the first series of the podcast, Subtle Disruptors, telling the stories of those who are quietly having an amazing positive impact on their city and the world. So we need to give people who are living in the city the same opportunities for leading a resilient lifestyle as those who are in the suburbs who can make the decision to do that because they have their own house and own land. One of the cities I'm yet to visit, but which has always fascinated me, is Havana, Cuba. Responding to a food crisis over 25 years ago, the citizens took to growing their own food in the most resourceful and innovative of ways. The benefits of people growing their own food are numerous. Eating better, happier, community connection, awareness of where their food comes from. It was a tender response which prompted this week's guest to ask, how can we make it easier for people in high-density cities to access unused land for the purpose of growing their own food? I'm Adam Murray, and thanks for joining me as I talk with Kate Dundas on the subtle disruption of urban agriculture. All right, cool, Kate. Hi. Hi. Good to be talking with you. Good to be talking with you too, and not in the rain. Not in the rain. So that is normally my first question, where are we? But, but we can talk about where we are, but perhaps... Where we were going to be. Yeah, let's talk about where we were going to be. We were going to be in a community garden in Fitzroy, one of the first 3,000 acres gardens that's now in its third location. So this garden has been travelling. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, when you see how big and heavy those planter boxes are, yeah. an epic move to transport them, but it's in its permanent home, which is nice. Okay. So it's not a temporary garden anymore, it's a permanent garden. Yeah. Um, so we were standing there. We were standing there, yeah. We <laughs> and now we're not. It was a little bit wet and we couldn't find a dry place to sit. So it's only a little bit drizzly. I feel like we should have stuck it out, maybe. Probably. The tree was not forming a good shelter from the rain because it's no. winter and there were no leaves. Yeah, no leaves and nowhere for my precious podcasting equipment to sit as well. Mm-hmm. We are, so we are around the corner yeah. at your office. So we're at yeah. my office on Johnson Street which is just down the road, just at the end of Napier Street. So we're only a couple of minutes walk from that garden. Okay. And your office, where you work, is Planisphere, Mm -hmm. is that right? Yeah. Are Planisphere and 3,000 acres connected in any way? They were. So 3,000 acres was a child of Planisphere. It was Planisphere gave birth (laughs) to 3,000 acres and now 3,000 acres is on its own, like a lovely teenager. Kicked that out. Yeah. So the staff at Planisphere developed a response to the brief. So 3,000 Acres started as a response to a brief that Vic Health put out with a question that was, how can we improve the supply and access to fresh fruit and vegetables in Victoria? And our response was to make it easier to grow your own through various different means, through making it easier to access land, access other people, access resources, um, just make it a hell of a lot easier to grow it yourself because there's lots of research that says if you grow your own fruit and vegetables you tend to eat more of it and be more interested Mm. in the food system as a whole system yeah so 3000 acres started as a that project and then it is developed into a not-for-profit entity with its own board and really has nothing to do with us anymore with planisphere anymore other than me um, and bits and bobs that we help out with when it comes to planning stuff yeah town planning things Hmm. yeah that's um man it's so cool because i've been thinking about that stuff Uh, going back a long way i did a a degree at rmit in uh urban and environmental management and one of the subjects there i can't remember what it was called but we we had a a 
very close look at Havana in Cuba mm. and all the urban agriculture that's going on there. Mm. Prime I example. Know, I don't know if it's still going on. I presume well, it is still it is. going on. I mean, that right. was a reaction to a crisis, and that's when you always get a lot of change happening when there's no other option. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they, I think they're pretty much self-sufficient in, in Cuba and the stuff that they grow in the city. Yeah. Whole different model. Whole yeah. different model. Not like our very flawed, broken Australian food system that we currently see. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about that because I think, I guess most people wouldn't really see it as being flawed or broken. Why do you think that it's flawed or broken? Oh, well, we're completely disconnected from the food system. So we, at the moment, convenience is king. We go to the supermarket, buy products, take them home, don't really think about it, have a lot of food waste. Mm. Like, oh, I don't remember the numbers. Foodprint, I've just put out a report with all of the details about the numbers around food waste, but it's something like 60% of the food that yeah, you buy. That doesn't surprise me, actually. It's chucked out, <laughs> yeah. not even composted. Yeah. So that's one element of a food system being broken. It's not a cyclical system. So we go and purchase and then throw out. We're yeah. not feeding all those nutrients back into the soil to help us to, again, grow food. Mm. Um, another problem with our food system is the farmers are getting um, shafted, basically. So not receiving a fair price for what they're growing. There's a middleman that takes a real massive chunk of profit and dictates what the farmers get. And we've seen with a recent dairy crisis. Yeah. Yeah. So the farmers are getting paid less than it costs pretty much to produce milk. And they're actually being asked to back pay um, the difference in what the milk companies expected to get and what they're actually getting because they <laughs> yeah. predicted the, China, the Chinese economy wrongly. You know, there's, uh, there's so many different facets of why our food system is broken. The amount of transport it takes to mm. get the food from A to B. I mean, in some cases, your food is grown in China, shipped to Norway to package, shipped to somewhere else, to Australia to distribute. And when you look at the food miles and energy consumption and calorie consumption that that takes to produce, well, one calorie of energy from food is a, an enormous amount of uh, equivalent calories in actual fossil fuel energy and fossil fuel energy is coming to an end yeah probably yeah definitely it's finite <laughs> although we don't seem to realize that just carrying on as if everything's fine <laughs> so i mean there's a whole lot wrong with the food system yeah. and a really kind of easy access point and in starting to think about changing that is growing your own food and having a conversation around food because it's much easier to talk about food and you know sharing and growing food than it is to talk about a difficult a more difficult concept like climate change and emissions that you can't see and you don't really understand yeah that's right i live in an apartment and it's interesting even just coming here today um a couple of the tenants in the block are ripping out the garden and we're going to start planting some edible plants awesome. in there which is, um, yeah, awesome. Because and I you say some of your neighbours, I bet you're going to know them now. Those neighbours yeah, will become your right. friends. Yeah. Like every good neighbour becomes a friend. Yeah. Like neighbours. No. Yeah, that's Australian right. neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just, you're right. Like it does bring the group of people together. And there was, you know, three people out there kind of getting their hands dirty today in the wet. Um, and touching that soil would have made you happy. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Yeah. All the little microbes in the soil actually make your brain feel happy. Is that that's a fact? That is, is a fact. Yeah, mm. yeah, and I guess so much of our lives, we can we can avoid dirt, mm -hmm. um, pretty much all day, really. 
the buildings that we work in, the footpaths that we work on, yep. the car we drive in. Yeah, I can very, very easily avoid dirt if you're living in an urban environment, which most of us are now. Yeah. Like in the last couple of years, we saw the tipping point across to more urbanised dwellers across the world and agricultural dwellers, which is a huge change. It's the first time we've ever seen that yeah. in the history of, well, the world. Yeah. Um, and maybe all of the mental health issues um, obesity issues and that kind of thing are stemming from our lack of connection with nature because we actually need it biophilia we need it our brains need we need to look at and be in contact with nature to be well functioning yeah and happy yep yeah I definitely I definitely can see that even in my own life like just anecdotally I guess just being outside and going for a walk mm. through a park even let alone like a proper bush mm -hmm. area um, definitely feel a lot better and it's interesting another podcast I just did recently was with Fifth Element Wellness and they have a massive focus on nutrition it's kind of like a gym but it's it's a, it's an all of person well-being focus to their center or their studio and yeah massive focus on nutrition and they've got me on this diet which is quite strict but it's going really back to your yeah, natural organically grown, you know, a lot of plant-based food, a lot of um, meat, it's got a high meat focus on this particular diet as well, but very much, you know, yeah, knowing where your food source comes from and, um, and the evidence that they talk about of that as well having a massive impact on people's mental health and overall well-being mm. as well. Yeah. yeah, it really does. Yeah. Huge impact. Huge. And it's not actually just eating the right food. You need to touch the soil and be out there and be immersed in nature. But I read an article recently that was saying, um, aesthetically, when we look at more complex objects or more complex environments, we feel more stimulated and better. So they did experiments where they wired all these people up um, and monitored their heart and their brain waves and stuff and got them to walk around different neighborhoods. And some of the neighborhoods were like big box retail, really bland facades, really quite boring. And everyone felt a bit depressed and were just like, oh, not feeling so good. And then they sent them to more complex neighborhoods where there was little shops, active frontages, more interesting architecture, and more importantly, lots and lots of trees and nature. Yeah. And when they were looking at the complexity and the patterns, so all the leaves and um, shades of green and they just felt like really much more interested and happier in that environment. Yeah, wow. Yeah, aesthetically. So yeah. looking at the colours and the shapes and the patterns and yeah, they did some research around people not taking di direct routes from A to B through boring neighbourhoods. They tend to choose the more complex, more interesting, wow. more nature-filled neighbourhoods instead. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So then, just to think about 3,000 acres then, what is 3,000 acres doing to start to fix what's happening with the broken food model? Mm. So we're looking at a lot of different things at the moment. Um, the primary driver is to try and make it easier for people to access land to grow food on. Um, so to do that, we're looking at various different ways. Uh, one of them is looking at the planning scheme and how difficult it is to access land through the planning scheme. So at the moment, growing food is not a defined use within the planning scheme. So when you approach council to say, I want to make a community garden here, council's like, 
uh, I'm not sure how to assess that because it's not a defined use within the scheme. Whereas yeah. if it's written down and defined, then it can be slotted into the planning scheme and it's more of a easier process. So you can tick the box that says, yes, that, that activity on that piece of land is a valid activity. Yeah. Whereas at the moment, it's an individual has to decide as to whether or not it's a valid activity because it's not written down. So that's one thing we're trying to do is to try and make it easier through the planning scheme. Yeah. Another thing that we're trying to do is to map um, all of the available land so we get an idea of the quantity of underused land across the city that's available for this type of activity. Um, so we've got a few projects with a few different councils where we're trying to quantify the leftover land. So we're not thinking about... Um, contentious land use issues like parks for example people get a little bit feisty if you start proposing growing food in parks because they yeah. see it sometimes as privatization of public open space so we're looking at the leftover bits of land um, the weedy side areas you know patches of land that are left over so we're trying to quantify that to get an idea of what would be possible in the city and um, then what kind of tools you need in place to be able to access that those bits of land so we've got a map uh, people can go on the map and if they spot little bits of land across the city you can map that once you've mapped that piece of land you can then have a conversation with other people around how to self-organize around it to get something happening on it because uh, it's really difficult to do things on your own so the other driver behind 3000 acres is networking people together that have similar ideas about growing food and creating community activities so it's a little bit of a dating site <laughs> yeah. as well as a finding land site. Yeah. And we've also been developing a whole load of resources around um, uh, the tools that you need to access the land. So things like lease agreements. Okay. So lots of the land is owned by um, various statutory bodies and private landowners and other people. So we're trying to create a system that people can take a template off our website for a lease that would be suitable for VicTrack or a lease that would be suitable for Melbourne Water or a lease for a private individual and then you just fill it in and send it off um, to make that quite complicated hurdle with the legal stuff around accessing land much simpler. Yeah. So that's one of the resources. Okay. Um, and we have really big plans to do loads of other stuff like <coughs> we'd love to have um, a network of sheds across Melbourne where you could share tools. Yeah. So a bit like the Brunswick yeah. Tool Library, okay. but for gardening tools. Yeah. So you could get together and you wouldn't have to buy loads of stuff. You could just use what was existing. Um, trying to tap into other networks to close the loop a little bit around um, cycling nutrients and things. So talking to other people doing composting, trying to compost on our own sites, trying to make it easier for people that don't have access to their own gardens to have somewhere to compost. Um, yeah, lots and lots of stuff. So finding land, making it easy for people to get on the land and making it easy for people to find other people to do it with. Yeah, very good. That, so that place that we just came from, that, to me that looked like a nature strip. Mm. What, what's the scenario in that particular example? So that was a nature strip. Um, it was a quite a wide nature strip beside Yarra City Council. So that garden started um, on a piece of, I have to say this right, Neo Metro. Ne <laughs> if I say Neo Metro, Metro, my accent it sounds like Neil Mitchell. Everyone gets really confused about the radio guy. So it started off as the, a developer owned land um, that we had yeah. for almost a year. Um, so we're making the most of a bit of land that was available for a short time to try and build a bit of community and 
get people talking to each other about what was going to happen yeah. there. So that was just up the road on Smith Street, just behind Smith Street. So we started there. Then the building got built and we moved that garden to another development site. Um, that was a bit of a stopgap because we knew it was temporary. We were looking for a permanent home. And then we worked with the Irish City Council to find a permanent home for this garden. And that is, yeah, it's a nature strip. It was just a grassy area. Um, and now it's an uh, area that grows a lot of food, which is brilliant. And it doesn't have fences. Mm. So we are very keen to ensure that all of our gardens are completely accessible to anybody who wants to access them. So who maintains that garden and is it open to anyone to come and eat? Is that what you're saying? Some of the beds are open to anybody to come and eat. So there's um, community beds where anyone can come and harvest and help. I and mean, there's some guidelines up in the garden as to what you're expected to do, you know. If you're going to take stuff, then water it or like, yeah. you know, give something back. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, I think, 50% around that are that are used by local residents to lots of people who don't have access to the garden. So, bit of a 50/50 model in that one is to complete open access and um, individuals taking responsibility. Yeah. But across all of our gardens, we found they're all open. There's none behind fences. Actually, that's a lie. There's one in Saxon Street, but it's got a code that you need to get in and out. Okay. Um, and uh, it's got distracted by James there. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we found that nothing has been vandalised whatsoever. Really? Amazing. Amazing. What the other? It tends to be the other end of the spectrum. So people are a little bit nervous about taking stuff, so they just leave it so we have heaps and heaps of food and have to write like black word signs saying no oh, come help yourself <laughs> get involved yeah yeah it's a bit like food swaps you know if you go to food swaps and you take a little or you take a lot and then you leave with a little bit and then at the end of food swaps there's always loads and loads of food left over yeah. yeah people seem to have a kind of respect for food yeah not vandalize it that's across our gardens i was speaking to a guy out in windham the other day who'd had a very different experience to that um, but we're quite actively involved in the management of the garden. So Pippa or Ellie, two of the girls at 3000 Acres, will go along to the gardens and work with the community and host events and things to try and... It's quite a hands-on approach to trying to build community. Because yeah. what we found at the beginning was we thought, oh, we're going to create this map and then everyone's going to find land and do all this stuff on their own. But what we found is actually it needs to be a lot more managed than that. Yeah. Yeah. And or you, is there instances where you found one key organizer as well who really yeah, with it too? If you can find them, it's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. They're really important to find the community leaders. Yeah. Mm, they're but gems. How many of the gardens are there around Melbourne? Mm. Yeah. I think there's maybe around eight. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a few others in the pipeline. So we helped get the fair share garden up and running. It's a big one. At Victoria Park. Okay. That's the biggest. It's around a hectare, I think. Oh, really? Yeah. Victoria Park, the football ground. Yes. Yeah. So just near the station there. Okay. Ah, oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. 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 So Fair Share are managing that, and they're running it like a market garden. But all of the food that's grown there goes to Fair Share. Yeah. And they redistribute it. They cook. They cook it first, then distribute it. So Fair Share, they they distribute food that's come from that's uh, unused food from yep. retailers. Yep. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, and they distribute it to people who need it. And this well, this gar this particular garden is growing food for that model, for that distribution model. Yeah. So then they, they then cook that and distribute it. Yeah, and some of them get involved in the growing, the growing the food. Yeah. 
How many different sites have been mapped currently? Oh, there's hundreds. That have been there's mapped, hundreds, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah, so what, we're a voluntary organisation. Yeah. So we are working out how to manage the demand and work out how to kind of make it easier for the community to do it on their own. Yeah. Because yeah. the successful gardens that we have are ones that have been fairly heavily managed by us. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's go through a little example then. I've got a place in mind, which is, um, we've talked about it a little bit, what's nearby. I don't know if you know, you know Wellington Parade? Yes. You see the MCG and then above the tunnel, there's oh. a little bit of land. So there's a tunnel where the train goes under Wellington Parade and Punt Road from Jollymont Station. Oh yeah. And just on the corner there, there's a little bit of land. Mm. Um, which is unused, it's fenced at mm -hmm. the moment, but it looks like it's, it's ugly, you know, and nothing happens there. I think it used to be the lockup for the people that got kicked out of the football. I think oh, the yeah. police used to use it for that. A little prison. Yeah, like a little prison, yeah, that's right. But now it's, it doesn't look like a prison anymore, but it's not that anymore. Okay, so if I said, okay, in my mind, I'm like, okay, that would be a good spot for a garden, mm -hmm. a, a community food garden. What would be the first step? What would I, how would I, go about using that okay so you go onto the website 3000acres.org and map it and then you'd look around because there's lots and lots of markers all over melbourne and you'd be able to look around and see who else had mapped sites around that and you could contact those people and say hey i'm interested in this piece of land trying to get together and maybe try and make something happen and then you'd contact us and then we we've got access to mapping to see who's of, who owns that piece right, of land. Yeah. Um, ideally, in the future, when everything's open source and available for the public, we'd you'd click on the map and it would tell you who owned it, and then it would point you in the direction of the right type of Forms. who to contact yeah. this type of lease. But that's really expensive to set up and yeah. kind of complicated. So we're in the um, beta version at the moment, <laughs> where you email us the concierge, so. yeah, <laughs> and we say, ah, oh, I think that piece of land is owned by. Whoever it might be. Probably VicTrack, I'd say. Well, if it's VicTrack land, then we're developing a relationship with VicTrack so we'd know who to talk to and we'd be able to network you together. Yeah. Um, there are certain things that VicTrack want you to do, like to form a um, an official group. You have to become incorporated. So it looks like you have a certain level of commitment to getting onto this land. Mm, so you'd right. go through the, the leasing process and then we'd give you, like tips of where to get stuff and how to get started and show you examples of the other gardens and what th we think works well and what doesn't work well yep. and then it's really up to you so we are kind of facilitating the process but we want you to lead it yeah mm. are the leases normally peppercorn type leases or uh, yeah, yeah 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 yes they are yep. you don't often have to pay anything or else you have to pay a small amount and we have pro bono lawyers who've gone through all the leases to make sure they're not too onerous yeah because when you get these things, it's like the same lease for a tiny community garden as it would be for some commercial operation. Yeah. So we've tried to strip it back as much as possible and make it very um, not so scary. Yeah. But one of the things that's allowed us access to that type of land is to have to have it as a temporary land use. So they wouldn't; those types of organisations wouldn't give a long-term lease because they don't know what's going to happen to the land in the future. Yeah. So they'll say, okay, you can have an, a one-year lease that can be renewed every year. And that's the way that they protect themselves from the risk of yeah. giving something long-term to the community. But, you know, it's better than nothing. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess for a lot of these gardens, um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of infrastructure or investment that has to be done to get them functioning yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can get a garden up and running for a couple of hundred dollars. We tend to use above ground planters. So they're old repurposed water tanks that you can cut in half. So you buy one for 60 bucks, cut it in half. That's two planter beds, really one meter by one meter squared. So it's two square meters of growing space. Yeah. And then you just need to retrofit them as IBCs, which is maybe a hundred bucks. So it's fairly cheap. And then you can take them with you when you go somewhere else. You can forklift them onto a van. Yeah. What did you say, IBCs? Yeah, they're called IBCs, interim bulk containers. You'll have seen them all over the place. They're like white plastic cubes with a yeah. metal grid yep. thing outside them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's what we use because those things are used as to go in one direction only. So they deliver things like they deliver saline solution and all different types of chemicals. So you need to find the ones the chemicals haven't been in. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then they just get like loaded up in farmers' yards. So you just see heaps of them lying about. Right. Mm, yeah. Because they're just single use. So it's really energy intensive. I did see, um, I went to a permaculture farm a couple of months ago and there was a few of them lying around there actually. They were being used for all sorts of things like yeah. toilets, water. Water tanks. Um, They're really cheap water tanks. Yeah. So it's a thousand litres in them. So if you look at a 2,000 litre water tank, it costs like $800. Whereas you can pick these things up from 60 bucks and just connect them together. Yeah. It's really, they're really useful things. Yeah. Mm. Um, cool. So there's there's about eight gardens at the moment. There's hundreds mapped. Yes. How much space? I mean, is is three thousand acres an estimate, or how much space do you think there is, say, metropolitan Melbourne? Well, that's what we're trying. Yeah, there's a lot. There is really a lot. I mean, if you just look at the land that's owned by, say, Melbourne Water plus Victrack, that is hectares, thousands of hectares of land. Yeah. And thousands of acres of land. The name comes from postcode 3000. Okay. So there's a couple of different acres projects. We took inspiration from 596 acres in New York. So they, f they actually found 596 acres of underutilised land in Brooklyn and around that area yeah. and thought, oh, goodness me, that's a lot of land in a heavily built up area like this. Um, and started the same project to try and allow communities to access that land. So we saw that project and thought that's really great. We should do something like that in Melbourne. So that was an open source project. Um, so we took complete inspiration from that and tried to run it here. So we wanted to align ourselves with them and called ourselves 3000 Acres. Yeah. And we were hoping it would be a global movement and there would be all these different acres projects popping up everywhere. And there has been kind of, it started in Sydney, starting up in the UK at the moment. There's, there's lots of exciting things happening just now. Lots of common, commoner yeah. type of uh, land, access to land projects and lots of little projects trying to change the food system because I think people are coming to the realisation that we, at, we physically cannot go on like this. So yeah. It's not going to work. Um, I mean, we can talk a lot about the benefits, I guess, but I, one of the things that's been going on in my mind is just about my bin in particular. And what would happen if I got rid of my bin? Mm. And how much of my life would that actually change? I think, and I just, you know, played the thought experiment out a little bit in my mind. I'm like, oh my gosh, that would change everything. Like, I wouldn't buy things unless I could find a way to dispose of them well. Mm. And I'd probably start, I wouldn't buy food in packaging, and I'd probably be prompted to grow a whole lot more mm -hmm. of my own food as well. Mm -hmm. How much food could we, like, 
in a city the size of Melbourne, I, I don't know how many people in Melbourne there are now, maybe four, five million, I suppose. We're about, yeah, I think we're about five million, working our way towards eight. Yeah, so yeah, growing, probably going to be the biggest city in Australia very soon. Yeah, we are already. Yeah, okay. <laughs> how much, what percentage of our food could we actually grow in these, in the t places It like would be this? difficult to grow, you could, put, you could grow enough um, lettuce and vegetables it would be difficult to get enough calories. So you're not going to grow fields of wheat and that kind of thing. Yeah, you can sure. definitely grow enough leafy greens and winter veg. But when it comes to actually calorie, calorific food, nuts, legumes, that would be really hard. Yeah. That's not going to work. Yeah. Nah. What about trees, like avocado trees and things well, like that? Well, I mean, something that we try and push for in some locations is fruit trees and in verges. So street trees is fruit trees. Yeah. There's been a real council pushback from that and it all comes down to liability and risk, which is really frustrating. So people worried about slipping on a, an apple that's fallen <laughs> and rotten on the ground. Really? Yeah, really. Um, and another issue is around council maintenance protocols. So it's really easy to go around and maintain like London plane trees, for example, or ornamental pear trees which are all over the place yeah. but it takes a lot more care and attention and time and cost to prune and look after fruit trees and council are very unwilling to plant fruit and nut trees in streets yeah. which is crazy yeah mm. so then the types of foods that right now are kind of like like your leafy greens your herbs i suppose are a big one. Oh yeah yeah easy easy they're all kind of additions to the diet, yeah. rather than being like staple nutritional requirements. But yeah. yeah, leafy greens, brilliant. You can easily easily grow enough leafy greens in your own garden, on your balcony, in a tiny little pot. Yeah, you can grow a lot in a small space. Yeah. Um, when we, was, we caught up about a week or two ago, I think, and you were talking a little bit about the, the UK and something that I didn't understand there, that if you went and said, I want a place to grow, I want some. I want some of my own land to grow a garden. Yeah. The authorities are obliged yeah. to give that to you. Yeah. So I think it's probably a remnant of the dig for victory stuff for the Second World War, the First World War, one war. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure which. Um, so yeah, it was one of those historical rules that says if you get six people together and go and ask your council to provide somewhere for you to grow food, they have to provide it for you. But it's so much easier to access land for growing fruit and veg in the UK because there's, there's a tradition of allotments. Yeah. So lots of people have access to land, yeah. which is another of the reasons that prompted me to start 3,000 Acres. Was when I arrived in Australia, I thought, oh, I miss my allotment. I want to grow stuff. I don't have a backyard. I'm renting. Mm. Um, I went to the local uh, community garden up the road, but that was only for the flats. It was um, a commission housing garden I wasn't allowed in yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah I spoke to the council and they were like oh no sorry there's nothing um, so a little bit different now I think there's lots of councils taking a much more proactive approach to food security and from a, a resilient security perspective rather than, and a bit of a community building yeah. perspective but it's very, very much more embedded in the culture of the UK yeah and I guess perhaps I'm speculating here but in Australia and most people had detached housing as well with a backyard. So mm -hmm. there would be 
I guess, numerous houses in Australia with their own vegetable garden. My parents are one of them with chooks or things like that as yeah, well. Yeah, unfortunately, that's also changing. When um, a lot of the, these houses are getting knocked down for dual occupancies or just those gigantic big houses that have a little meter around that tracks around the side of the house, you know. For a path. Yeah, for a little <laughs> path around the edge. So houses are getting much bigger. Um, the suburbs are densifying in, in the inner and middle ring suburbs. I mean, there's hundreds of plate, there's hundreds of back gardens, of course there is still. Yeah. But nobody can access them. It's really expensive to buy a house. Yeah. Um, and given that Melbourne's growing up and we're moving towards 8 million, the suburbs are really changing. What should be happening is we should be retrofitting the suburbs to be more resilient to climate change and to shock rather than densifying and reducing green space in those areas we should smartly densify and have more people living in less space rather than the same amount of people living in bigger houses um, and then retrofit ourselves our own blocks so you actually have a lot of scope to become resilient in the suburbs because you can you know you can get your own solar panels you can have chicks you can grow food Whereas if you're in the city in an apartment block, there's layers and layers of regulations that sit on top of each other. That means if you wanted to put solar panels on an apartment block, it's way more difficult because you've got to agree and get things and you know all these legal problems that start coming up. If you want to access land to grow food, you can't because there's a park, there's, there's conflicting land uses and there's not enough community gardens. Yeah. If you want to have chicks, you probably can't because where are you going to put them? So we need to give people who are, who are living in the city the same opportunities for leading a resilient lifestyle as those who are in the suburbs who can make the decision to do that because they have their own house and own land. Totally. And do you see any rooftop gardens popping up in that regard in terms of apartments and that type of thing? Not enough. Um, in France they've just passed some legislation that means when you build a new apartment block, it has to have a rooftop garden wow. or a rooftop solar. Yeah. That is in the planning scheme, it has to happen. Whereas here, no, of course it's not. But it could be very easily. You know, it could be that every new apartment block that was built should have a rooftop garden. Yeah. I mean, why doesn't it? It's very difficult to retrofit rooftop gardens and green roofs because the buildings aren't built to structurally support that type of weight. Right. So it's expensive to retrofit. Um, a supporting structure you yeah. need to do it from the word go and yeah. to implement that kind of change it should really come through legislation in the planning scheme because then if developers want to build they have to do it yeah it's not like oh i'm a nice developer i'm going to put a roof garden on this it's too expensive you know they're not going to make that choice yeah unless it's a competitive advantage to selling apartments which you know potentially there is i mean there's that I don't know if it has a rooftop garden, but there's that very commun communal oriented. The commons. The commons in that Brunswick. Has, yeah, yeah, that's got a rooftop garden. Yeah, yeah. and it has and a shared laundry. And yeah, that's, yeah, that's a really good example of a good development. Um, and then there's to the two Nightingale projects that are coming up. What which, are they? Uh, again, I think it's small giants of developers, potentially. S similar type of idea where um, the apartment blocks are stripped back from a lot of excessive things like parking. Yeah. So they're encouraging people not to own a car because there's no parking. There's, um, not every apartment has air conditioning. Um, they're built with more passive solar principles, so there's airflow through the apartment and shading yeah. for summer and things. Um, and they have shared communal facilities. It makes so much sense. You don't need your own 
washing machine and tumble dryer at all, do you? No. I mean, the amount of time that you think that thing's in use for. Totally. So there's a lot of shared appliances and shared garden areas, um, shared communal spaces. I think there's a big community kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. So there is, a, a bit, it's very rare. It's not the norm. But um, we're seeing a little bit of a change happen. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I know this is, what I'm about to say is confirmation bias, but amongst the people that I've been talking with recently, there is a really strong focus on the future of housing and how people want to live. And people who, I guess, have, maybe they have a bit of a nomadic um, orientation to the way they want to live as well, a bit of an Airbnb lifestyle in mind, but they're also thinking about um, the cost of it, the the private ownership of it as well, and um, also the the economic and the environmental implications of their housing. Mm. And I guess there's so many elements too, like even the social. Um, like for me, I'm a single dad. And so just to have, if I was to imagine a place where it was much more of a community or a neighbourhood where yeah. it could get ease of babysitting. Yeah, it's so much easier, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, like for us when we don't have family to help babysit. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, I struggle with the idea of co-housing, but <laughs> so we visited one where, as part of my permaculture course, where they made decisions, it was consensus decision making. I couldn't handle that. <laughs> I just couldn't handle it. Take too long? Nothing happens! Yeah. Nothing happens! Ever! Yeah. Like, decisions around, positive decisions that can be made yeah. around, I don't know, doing the garden. Yeah. You know? Doesn't, nothing, people don't agree. Yeah. So nothing happens. It would drive me insane. You just burst my bubble. <laughs> You're I don't probably know. right though. Yeah, I think I used to drive to the, um, the permaculture course when we were doing our little excursion to the guy who lived in one of the first cooperative living places in Victoria and he yeah. had all of these terrifying stories. <laughs> oh my God. I think there's something like 2% of intentional communities survive. So there must be a mid-ground between typical suburban living and intentional communities that's maybe just making it easier to create a real tight-knit community, mm. but you all have your own house. Have you, have you, I don't know, you might not have seen it, but I've, I did an episode with a lady called Maria, Ca um, Maria Cameron, who lives in Heidelberg West, and I think she might have... Marunduka. No, it's not Marunduka. It's a different one that's emerged almost spontaneously based on a few decisions that one household made about the way they were going to live. Uh -huh. And it's just organically grown to be this connection of about, I think there's, there's, there's maybe 10 to 20 houses involved now, 30 to 50 people involved. Some of the fences are broken down between the houses. Yeah, see, that's, that's like David Holmgren's idea of retrofitting the suburbs, probably, mm. where you can live in your own house, but you can share backyards and like have a more efficient kind of network of growing food because yeah. you do it together. That's what they do. Yeah. yeah that's good. Yeah. yeah I, can, I can very much get on board with that. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you still have some sense of autonomy and decision making. Yeah. Where you can just make decisions rather than talk about it for ages. Yeah. <laughs> I get that. Let me just check the time here. All right, we're going pretty well. Um, you also are on the radio. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm co-host of a show called Greening the Apocalypse on 3RRR <laughs> on Tuesdays at 7pm. Which is a Melbourne community 
radio it's community station. radio yeah. yeah so i'm on that with adam grubb who was i met him through my permaculture course adam is a wonderful joy mm-hmm. <laughs> he's lovely yeah um he's an old well it's not old sorry adam he's a young <laughs> geek type <laughs> technical he, he started a website called resilience.org and he's yeah. really interested in peak oil yeah. and then that led him to permaculture um, and he's a really good teacher and I met him through my course and then we became friends and now we do this show together and then also Bushy who is a wonderful <laughs> landscaper he's a lot of fun heavy yeah. metal joyful man <laughs> and Sarah Coles who is a journalist and surfer <laughs> so Sarah and I rotate week to week so we do every second week yeah. and Adam and Bashir every week yeah. and we talk to some incredible people who are doing some really interesting things across Melbourne and actually we do a lot of phone in so across the world yeah. spoken to so many amazing people yeah mm. and if people I mean obviously people can tune into that on Triple R on when was it? it's Tuesdays at 7 7 till 8 and it's been turned into a podcast, podcast. And you can stream it on demand as well on the Triple R website. Yeah, great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple of questions as I mentioned as we wrap up. Outside of the things that you're working in at the moment, is there something that you daydream about disrupting in the future? Like oh outside of so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of my friends once told me that I had no hobbies and it was dangerous because I think like my hobbies and my work sort of merge. Yeah. So I think a lot about how we work. Like working nine to five, being office bound is probably not the future. So I think the future of work really interests me because I love my job. Like I actually, I really like coming in and working on the projects that I'm working on. But I imagine a future where it's um, a different type of working environment. So you can travel and work, for example. Like it's much easier to access the really big files that I need to come into work to access. Uh, so that's like a technological solution. Yeah. But also, if we all didn't work nine to five, it'd have a massive impact on the city. So you would get rid of peak hour, for example. Yep. Like if all kids weren't in school from 10 till three or whatever they're in school from, then you wouldn't have all of this rushing about, stupid times, and things wouldn't be so full. You know, the school sits there empty from the whole of the afternoon and evening. Yeah. If there was different shifts in school patterns, it would ease the system a lot. Like, why, why is everything timed? Why do we work nine to five? Why do kids go to school at that particular time? It puts a lot of pressure on a lot of things and it makes your life quite chaotic for really short moments in the day. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah, and these are things that we've created. We've designed them we've that designed way. We've designed them that well. way and it's yeah. really daft. Yeah. Like why is everyone getting on the train? It's half eight, half past eight. Why? Why are we all going in at the same time when a lot of us work across time zones now? It doesn't really matter. You don't all have to be there at the same time. So true. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, it worries me the thought, I've just had a baby, like the thought of trying to juggle working and getting him to school and stuff. It doesn't need to be like that. Why do we make it like that? It annoys me. (laughs) Take that away. Take it away. Yeah. Surely it can be more flexible. Um, I'm interested in the idea of community and really doing things ourselves together a lot. I'm interested in sharing economy and non-monetary economy. So why do we always pay to have fun? You know, why do we have to pay all the time? Like, why do we pay to go to the cinema? And why do we, 
like fun is always paid for. We should be able to, we should do things together that are fun and have fun in the process. Like making alcohol could be a community event yeah. and then you could have a time where that alcohol is ready and then you have a big party together. And it'll yeah. be much more satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. So that kind of stuff. I love that stuff too. Um, I think a lot about the way we work as well, particularly, yeah, I just, I think that workplaces are unhealthy places to come to mm-hmm. in general. And that doesn't need to be like that. We've designed them that way as well. Mm-hmm. For me, it seems to be a legacy of uh, industrial oriented working. You know, well, we it's, like it's industrialization. It's trying to make us as efficient as possible. Yeah. Trying to factoryize, factoryize? That's what, yeah. Make into a factory ourselves and our outputs stifling. Yeah. Mm. The final question is about um, yourself and this podcast is called Subtle Disruptors, so people having a quiet, under the radar, positive impact through the things they're doing for people who are doing that as well. But what's something that you've done in your own life, a subtle change that you've made in your own life that's helped you on the path that you're on now? Mm. A subtle change. Gosh, that's a hard question. I don't know. I think... I haven't ever planned anything, really. Just kind of ended up in Australia by mistake. (laughs) Um, Probably quitting my job in the UK, maybe. It's not really a subtle change. It was like, I'm fed up. Let's go to France. (laughs) So we moved to France and then, like, worked growing food and making beer and things. And then came backpacking to Australia. Maybe the choice for me not to plan my life mm. maybe and just to kind of mosey on along and see what happened yeah and not to be too worried about it how, how was that a conscious thing do you think or was that something you, you just automatically did because i know what you know growing up through school i always kind of had i don't so much anymore but i always had kind of five-year plans or you know no, I've, never had, I've never had a five-year plan i get really worried about the thought of sta- like being still and not changing yeah um hmm yeah so it definitely wasn't a conscious decision. It was, we had, we planned to go travelling and go to China and open a cake shop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. That so was a plan. Oh, right. yeah. And then ended up in Australia. Yeah. And what, I mean, you haven't had a plan, but what has guided your decision making in those moments? Has it just been whatever, what your intuition or what, mm. you know, what seemed to be right? Yeah, 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 it has been intuition. Definitely, and a strong belief in community and the power of good design and landscape architecture and cities, a real interest in cities and what we can do to make them better places and a real frustration at the stupid things we do. (laughs) (laughs) Like all go to work at the same time. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. And have things so dictated by politics that you can't have good outcomes sometimes. Yeah, a lot of frustrating things that are embroiled in the world of planning. Yeah. Okay, mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. so much. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you and for sharing all about your life. Thanks. Really good. Thanks for coming and sitting in the office. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Subtle Disruptors. I hope you got something out of it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show, including any suggestions you have for guests. You can get me on email through adam at subtledisruptors.com. And if you enjoyed listening and would like to be part of getting the word out about the Subtle Disruptors of Melbourne, a great way to do this is through jumping into iTunes and rating and reviewing this podcast.
I'm Adam Murray, and I look forward to hearing about your own subtle disruption. Bye for now. Thank <laughs> you.